As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, uh, one thing we talk about quite a lot on this podcast, especially lately, has to be volatility. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't see much volatility in any markets in 2017, and it's picked up more in 2018, though not dramatically. But we certainly have seen some very interesting episodes across a range of markets, making things quite a bit more interesting. Yeah, I love that we have episodes when there's no volatility, and then we have episodes when there's lots of volatility. But do we ever stop to ask about the backbone of volatility measuring or volatility models? No, we don't really. I mean, we talked a little bit. It's like we always sort of talk around it, don't we? Like we talked about how the people blew up when they were shorting the VIX and stuff like that. But it is true that to some extent... We feel like these measures of volatility are like handed down to us on stone tablets on the top of a mountain rather than something that people had to sort of come up with on their own. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the origins of a uh, volatility model that is essentially the the backbone of uh, a lot of Wall Street risk management and a lot of the volatility modeling that we've seen in recent years. It's something called value at risk. And I think you're already familiar with it. I have a vague idea of what it is, but I think it's something like if you have a big portfolio, you want to measure what is a sort of reasonable amount you might expect to lose on any given day over some time period to see how risky your portfolio is. That's pretty good, actually. Uh, that's impressive. So uh, <laughs> just to just to harden. Uh, Thanks, harden- Tracy. I'm glad my very rudimentary <laughs> definition was enough to impress you. No, but it's true. I mean, that's it. It's uh, the amount of money that you might expect to lose at a given confidence level over a certain time period. So, for instance, if you and I were running Odd Lots Capital, which we totally should do at some point, uh, and we had a one day value at risk of a million dollars, say, at the 95% confidence level, that would mean we would expect to lose more than a million dollars on um, one day out of 20 at a 95% confidence level. So this model, you know, it was invented in the 1990s by JP Morgan, and it, it spread throughout all the banks. And it 
It became the backbone, as I said, but it's also intensely controversial, and you see lots of criticisms of it. Nicholas Nassim Taleb is probably the most famous critic of the model. But I should say, today we're going to speak with someone who not only invented value at risk, but can also explain what it is that the thing does and what it is that it doesn't do. Great. Well, I I really don't know much more about it beyond uh, what I told you, so I am looking forward to learning more. So without further ado, let's bring on our guest for this episode. It is Till Goldeman. Till, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be with you. So Till, maybe uh, just to begin with, you could walk us through uh, your early career history. You know, I mentioned that VAR, uh, Value at Risk, was invented at J.P. Morgan, and you were obviously at the bank when you invented it. But how did you end up there? So I was a banker at J.P. Morgan, and in a banking career in those days, you were sent around around the world in different jobs in different locations. And my job at the time before this was trading room in Hong Kong. And I was in charge of that. And I was approached it from a numerical viewpoint rather than from a making money viewpoint. And as a consequence, I didn't make that much money, but I had collected a lot of numbers. So they said, well, perhaps you're better off coming back to New York and apply the number skills and we make the money, which I accepted and I became head of asset liability management, which at the time was being in charge of the balance sheet risks of the bank. And our trading was increasing all over. And we then decided to use a new methodology to look at trading risks in addition to balance sheet risks. And that's when all the numbers I had collected about foreign exchange became handy. I knew how to deal with large data sets and how to look at large numbers. And that's how we came across this value at risk uh, system. Till, what years were these? Because obviously these days it's unimaginable to think that there would ever be trading, let alone large-scale trading, without a very significant quantitative or numerical bent. So when when did this uh, sort of transition start to happen? This was 1984, and we started with looking at foreign exchange, which at the time we had about 15 trading rooms around the world and traded about 15, 20 currencies, probably five or six in volume. And we had limits around the world, which we set in terms of millions of dollars of dollar mark or millions of dollars of yen dollar or pound sterling you could take as a position. And that was not very uh, good thing to do because every time you invent, you want to give a new limit on a new currency, you had to set a new limit in amounts of outstandings. We decided we need a common measure of these limits and that measure was volatility. So how much of the value at risk model was influenced by the events of, uh, of 1987 when you had, you know, the Black-Scholes formula that may have contributed to the 1987 stock market crash and really the first sort of um, systematic sell-off, I guess, in the market? I would say not at all. 
at, at that time, we were fairly well on the way of understanding how we wanted to do it. And we realized that uh, a good part of the market wasn't. And we could explain why it, why they weren't doing it the right way, because they were looking at normality of markets, which we knew was a reasonably good starting position to take, but not necessarily the final answer. So we could explain what happened in that instance, in that accident, and we stuck to our guns and said, well, in the absence of such extreme events, we want at least have something better than looking at notional amounts. So can you explain, before we really get into the development of value at risk, walk us through a little bit more what risk management looked like in the old days before the sort of numerical approach? Because obviously risk management has been around for a long time, but how did you how did people approach the concept before you started you started doing your work? I think you have to understand that risk management in the old banking days was mostly about credit risk. Can you lend somebody money and how probable is it that this person will give you the money back? And then as the balance sheets of the banks got bigger and the interest rates started to move, a new risk came up and that was called the interest rate risk of banks. And that was if you were borrowing short-term and lending long-term, that is, if you borrow overnight with a short-term rate and lending for five years, you get squeezed when interest rates go up. And to measure that squeeze or that, that risk, asset liability management was developed in the 60s and 70s. Asset liability management was something which was long-term, that is, you developed your risks or you looked at the risks over years instead of over shorter periods. And then in the 70s and 80s, trading started to really take off. There wasn't much trading in banking before that. And the trading was concentrated in foreign exchange. And that risk was really an overnight risk because the traders would take a position during the day and then some took these positions overnight. And overnight you had jumps in currencies and you try to figure out how much could you lose overnight. And when these foreign exchange risks became substantial in the early 80s, as foreign exchange trading took off, we needed a measure for that, which was in addition to the credit risk and in addition to the balance sheet risks. So as you're developing this model, I mean, walk us through what it was exactly that was going into it? Like, what's the data? We know that it looks at historical data. And what are the parameters um, that it also involves? And how did you agree on those parameters? So it's, it's very simple. Assume that you have a trader who has a limit of $10 million in dollar mark exchange risk or foreign exchange risk, or let's say dollar pound sterling risk, right? And you would simply ask yourself, if that trader had that position over the last year, over the last two years, or the last three years, every night, what is the maximum amount he could have lost overnight on that position? And when you looked at the history of these positions over, you know, or rate changes overnight, 
you came up with a bell curve of distributions of potential gains and losses. And we looked at that bell curve and said, well, the best way to explain or to put a number value on that bell curve is called volatility or standard deviation in mathematical terms. So that was kind of, you look at the history and see how much you would have lost if you had it in the past. And then you say, the past is a reasonably good representation of what could happen in the future. And if you lost no more than a million dollars over for 95 of the 100 days, then that was a good measure of what you could potentially lose. Now you have to understand that at that time, the entire portfolio management theory in asset management, as well as the entire options model process, both things which gained Nobel Prizes for their respective inventors were all based on the same concept. That is, measure volatility in terms of standard deviation in a normal distribution. So it was a reasonable assumption to make that same assumption that was used also in asset management and in the options world. So then the obvious question is, and the criticism that you hear now and that you've heard for a while is, okay, all of these measures are based on sort of a normal world, but we get fat tails and the world doesn't often look like a bell curve. And so then the question is, what is the value of the model in light of what we know about sort of extreme events? I think there's two things you have to consider here. Number one, you have to understand the context within which the traders and management of trading operations were operating. And the context was, we now have a measure, a reasonably good measure of risk. Shouldn't we compensate our traders based on the profits they make in relation to the risks they take? And that was a very new concept. And that was really very helpful. Because if you had one trader who was trading pork bellies and made a million dollars in profits, and another trader who was trading dollar mark and made a million dollars, which one was the better trader? Well, the better trader was the one which had less risk compared to the million traders he made. So you now had a benchmark to evaluate traders with the same profitability, and you increased the limits for the trader, which had the lower risk number for the same amount of profits. That was fundamental in better managing risk activities. And that in turn led to distortions. Because if you now put yourself in the position of a trader who says, well, if I'm getting paid with a bonus in terms of returns on risk, that is, if I make a million dollars with 10 risk, how about if I make my position so they don't look so risky? And now I'm motivated very strongly to take positions in of the type which have high tail risks. Because high tail risks don't show up correctly with the standard deviation volatility measurement. 
So there was a, and, and people didn't realize that at the, at the time, nor did I, there was a bias created by this measurement of risk to have traders go against or, or create positions which were not properly measured. So that was number one, a very important fact, which when in retrospective, you see it happens all the time. Whenever you measure something and you pay people based on that measurement, then they try to game the system. So that measurement created the bias of creating more uh, one-sided risks or tail risks. The second basic thing that changed was the interconnectivity of the markets. The markets in the old days were fairly independent. The dollar exchange rate didn't change much when Japanese interest rates went up and down or the interest rates in Uruguay didn't change much when the sterling interest rates went up and down. As the financial markets started to link all the markets together, the markets became interdependent. And there's a standard uh, theorem in engineering which says the more complex and the more interdependent the markets a system is, the less stable it becomes. And stability is basically the antipode to normal, right? So the more you integrated financial markets around the world, the more you made them interdependent and faster, the more you created non-normality. So in my perspective, the two things, the interdependence and speed of markets and the gaming by the profit makers created more non-normality. So that's a really interesting argument. And I hadn't actually thought about how this basically gave rise to risk-adjusted performance uh, for traders. But when value at risk is most heavily criticized is, is usually uh, during the financial crisis or in the run-up to the financial crisis for failing to foresee big trading losses on things like mortgage-backed securities and subprime bonds and stuff like that. Is your argument that because of the models, because they were so entrenched, uh, traders were sort of clustering into things that didn't look risky, you know, things like triple A rated portions of synthetic CDOs, but that actually were exposed to significant fat tail risk. And also that the financial system was more interrelated. And so you had correlations that the model wasn't necessarily capturing. Is, is that the criticism? That's almost correct. When you say correlations, it means that the correlations were not normal. The correlation is just a statistical measure. And again, there you assume normality in the correlation distribution. But the more interdependent and the more uh, non-normal the positions are, the less the standard measurements of volatility and correlations are correct. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. 
Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So is the idea, let's say I were a foreign exchange trader and I was trading the euro and I was trading the yen and the Korean won and so forth. And you might look at the past 100 days or three years or five years of performance of each of those and come up with some sort of reasonable expectation that, okay, the won falls this much and the yen falls this much and stuff like that. But the idea being that what happens now or what happens in intercorrelated markets is that they all fall into they all move dramatically on the same day at the same time. And so they're not just sort of random and normal, but the performance of all the different positions in the books go to extremes at the same time. Is that sort of the idea of like how the model breaks down under uh, more extreme correlations or more extreme interconnectedness? That's correct. It's the interconnectedness and the complexity of the system which makes these movements erratic. But at the same time, you have to invent positions which don't look so risky. And the first type of positions that were taken were called long-dated forwards options. That is, a trader said, well, dollar-yen usually moves within 10% or within 20%. How about if I make a contract which says, I'll sell you an option that the yen doesn't move more than 50% over the next 10 years. And if you take that position, you make money every day, except when the hits the fan. And that's when you lose really big. So this is a typical, highly high tail risk position. And that kind of position doesn't get picked up correctly with the VAR measurements. And the traders were biased to take these positions because they got easier limits for those and could make more profits on a risk-adjusted basis. Why doesn't VAR pick up that risk? Because VAR is a, you know, is this simple measurement which depends on the normality of the distribution. And if you didn't have that simple measure of the bell curve, you couldn't do the math. It was simply, the math becomes so complex. The very moment you move away from normality that it was just not feasible. So I have a related question. You walked us through how, how the traders would game uh, the VAR system. How did value at risk actually fit into risk management at the banks? Like, how were the senior risk managers using it? How valuable did they find it as a risk management instrument? And what actually happened to people if they breached their VAR limits? I've never been able to get to the bottom of that. Everyone seems to have a different answer. Well, we had something which was called the 415 report, which was every day at quarter past four in the afternoon, we would have assembled a report which would show the VAR, the, the risk around the globe in all our trading positions. 
And with that report, we went to the chairman's office and said, well, here is your risk. And the chairman at that point in time was Mr. Weatherstone. And he said, yeah, that's like a nice number, but you know, I don't really believe so much into it. Uh, perhaps it's not right. And he was rightfully skeptical. But the, the number proved out to be a reasonably good assumption for most of the days. So everybody became more reliable. You could show that the actual loss in the global positions of J.P. Morgan was only five in five out of 100 days more than that number showed. So that was the verification of the calculations. But there was always a understanding that this is not the maximum you could lose. It's the minimum you could lose in a bad situation. So in 95% of the time, you would not lose more. But in the other 5% of the time, you would actually lose more. So is part of the criticism of VAR a sort of mischaracterization of how it was used or perhaps present, in your view, a cartoonish view or a, a naivete that did, never actually really existed? I think that naivete didn't exist in large, sophisticated institutions. And Morgan was one of them, but there were many others. But then as the VAR became kind of a government-regulated standard or a central bank-regulated standard, of course, a lot of people started to use it without really understanding uh, what the limits were. It's very much like you drive on a highway 10% or 20% above the speed limit and you feel happy because you're faster. And then you see a big accident and you slow down. And then an hour later, you're back to your old speed. People take risks as they perceive it. And when somebody says 60 is the right number or VAR is the right number, then they behave accordingly until nothing bad happens, much worse. And then when something happens, then they kind of rein themselves in and they go, relax again over time. So till in the aftermath of the financial crisis, we did see some banking regulators who tried to alter VAR models. They tried to make them more robust. You had things like uh, stressed VAR, which was supposed to be better at measuring the fat tails in the probability distribution. Uh, you also had other models like expected shortfall. How useful do you think those changes actually are to value at risk? I, I think they're very useful. Value at risk is a starting point to get a feel of kind of where the risks are about. And then you have to do stress modeling and you have to do simulation under extreme circumstances. So these are all very good further developments, particularly if you have a, a bias in the markets that runs against you. The bias are, as I mentioned before, the complexity and the trader uh, motivation. So, Till, the other thing that we've seen happen uh, since the financial crisis is that volatility trading has sort of become a, a thing in and of itself, or at least on a scale that we didn't necessarily see uh, 
before 2008-2009. Given your background in modeling volatility, what do you think about the explosion in volatility trading, you know, retail investors uh, buying and selling uh, things like exchange-traded products tied to the VIX? Is that inherently risky or does volatility not necessarily equal risk? No, I think volatility trading is very much like all other trading, particularly if it's done in retail, it's done by uh, income poops who don't understand and they just want to go to the casino. And the financial institutions are very happy to provide the casino environment because they can make money of it. So uh, volatility trading is like any other kind of trading. It's a little bit more complex and more, it has a, a better story to it, but it's just, another way of speculation for the retail. For the professional, it's a more sophisticated way of hedging things. So Till, clearly you're you're not still working at at JP Morgan. When did you get out of finance and what are you up to now? Well, I I got out of finance in the early 90s, mid 90s, when my career, I think, at J.P. Morgan was stalling, and I didn't think that was right. So I moved out and came to to Silicon Valley to work in a startup in financial technology. And I was very lucky that startup turned out very well, and it allowed me then to do other things like uh, building a vineyard or growing wines and making wine. And uh, now, by now, I have fully transitioned into agriculture. That does sound like a, a pretty awesome uh, turn of events there. Oh, it's wonderful. I can tell you, I, would, I wish I had seen how nice it is a long time ago and would have become a farmer in the first place. Are there any uh, similarities between modeling risk at a large investment bank and um, growing grapes in California? Yeah, I I think we understand an equal amount of both. We certainly, I'm surprised how little we understand about how to grow good grapes and make good wine. It's all an art. And the more numbers I apply to it, the less certain I am I understand what's going on. So it's very much like risk management. You collect a lot of numbers and you hope you get to some insight. And by the time you think you have some insight, uh, something else happens and you start all over again. I love that answer because it sort of blows up literally everything we think we know about the modern world, which is that all these old practices that people do, we could just perfect them more if we really apply some data or AI or machine learning. And that is a your answer sort of just undercuts the entire thing. It's not undercutting. It's just that as we industrialize the world, you know, we have to put numbers on things because you can only manage by numbers. And there's limits to how much you can industrialize. But in the wine industry, the world has become industrialized. It's like Coke. You know, a lot of large producers produce the bulk of all the wine that's drunk. And very small number of small producers uh, getting all the stories, but they don't do it that way. So most 95% of all the wine is produced by 10% 
of all the producers. And it was exactly the opposite 100 years ago. We'll have to do a Odd Lots episode on the uh, changing <laughs> wine market at some point. But <laughs> I think we'll have to leave it there for now. Um, Till Goldeman, thank you so much for joining us. Really fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, Till, wait, before you go, what's the name of your winery so people can look it up? It's called Chateau Hetzekais, which comes from Swiss German and means there is no chateau here. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Till. So, Joe, I found that conversation really, really interesting. Again, I I think it's great to actually go to one of the foundations of volatility as we currently understand it and talk about it today. But there were also things in there that I hadn't really thought about before, like the notion that because you had this model, you had a bunch of traders who essentially tried to game it by clustering into things that they didn't think the model would pick up. I thought that was fascinating. I had not thought about that either. And so now that's a whole new sort of avenue of thing I want to think about and explore. Also, the idea that we look at VAR as this sort of regulatory measure, but it didn't start off that way. And so the idea that maybe at one point this was a thing that sophisticated people understood have limitations eventually becomes this thing that becomes a sort of de facto measure of bank health inappropriately is a concept that also I had never really thought about before. And also, I think, sort of vindicates its usefulness, even with the well-known limitations that it has. Yeah, it kind of makes me think that the criticisms that you've seen of value at risk, that they can't anticipate tail risks, you know, it's not really... it's not a great criticism of the model, or what I mean is we, we shouldn't be criticizing the model. Maybe the thing we should be criticizing is the fact that we have these huge institutions that are so complex that you can't actually come up with any model that's able to accurately capture everything it is that they do and all the risks that that entails. Absolutely. And I think it's funny, uh, you know, even though it was sort of a half-joking question maybe about the connection between wine growing and risk management I do think there is a common thread of just humility. Like, yes, there's only so much we can know about things that will happen in the future. And that sort of commands us or requires us to not try to get too scientific about what could go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go think about the usefulness of financial models and how much we actually know about finance over a glass of wine right now. And I am going to go back to my desk and uh, do normal work. All right. Fair enough. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Topher Forhez. He's at Forhez T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.